Hi, this is Ashu. Before we start the show, I want to share the exciting news that on December 9th and 10th, Foundation Capital will be hosting its first ever enterprise conference, which we're calling FC Build. FC Build is a two-day, all-virtual gathering of B2B entrepreneurs and executives who are building the modern enterprise. We have an amazing lineup of speakers, including many CEOs that you have heard right here on the podcast. Joining us are Frank Slootman, George Kurtz, Doug Merritt, Janine Pelosi, Dan Springer, Edith Harbaugh, Tian Suo, and many, many more. Visit foundationcapital.com for more details and to find a link to register. From Foundation Capital, this is B2B as CEO, the show about how to scale your enterprise startup and how to grow from founder to CEO. I'm Ashur Gard, General Partner at Foundation Capital. Edith, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I'm really excited to have you on our podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Edith, tell me a little bit about yourself, your life story. Sure. So I got an engineering degree from Harvey Mudd College. And then I was an engineer and an engineering manager at startups and actually got some patents on deployment in the first dot-com boom. I was then a product manager at some startups that completely disappeared. And then one that was very successful, TripIt, which was the number one travel app in mobile for a while. TripIt was acquired by Concur. And then I was a product director at Concur, uh, which was one of the biggest SaaS exits at the time of $8 billion after I left. And from all this, I really wanted to start my own company. So I started LaunchDarkly with my good friend from college, from Harvey Med College, John Kodamal, in 2014. And what inspired you to start a company? Uh, I mean, two separate things. One was I really liked creating things. I had been an engineer. I really liked building things from scratch. I liked seeing them out in the hands of the users. That was something that I loved doing when I launched TripIt for Business. There's nothing more exciting than, you know, spending your time creating, building something, and then suddenly seeing it come to life. Uh, so that's just wanting to start a company. The second was LaunchDarkly was a space that I had a lot of experience and passion around. We do feature management, which is allowing developers and product managers and marketing people and sales to all get features out to the right person at the right time. Our mission is that software powers the world, LaunchDarkly empowers all teams to deliver and control their software. So I was very enthusiastic about bringing this particular concept to life. What was the origin of the idea? Yeah, so we didn't invent this technique called feature flagging. I mean, a lot of smart people started using it. Martin Fowler popularized it. We had a framework at TripIt that was very powerful and we used for our own internal releases where we could collectively turn a feature on for a couple people, get their feedback, uh, roll it out to more people and kill switch it if it didn't go well. So this was a framework that we had to build internally and I was always frustrated that there wasn't something off the shelf for it. 
I'd worked earlier for Ann Duane, who's a brilliant, brilliant lady. And she says, Edith, this business makes complete sense because you complained 10 years ago about this. You can see that Facebook was accelerating their own development because they had their own internal platform called Gatekeeper, but we were just too small of a player to have the same tools. Got it. So you'd, you'd been complaining about the problem. It had been bugging you for a decade, it seems like, and so it was time to fix it for everyone. It just always mystified me that there wasn't a product on the market to do this. You know, why, why wasn't there an external solution that would give us all the power that we wanted? Tell me a little bit about sort of the starting story. So you've decided you want to do a startup. You've decided you want to do feature flags as a starting point. What's next? Well, of course, my amazing co-founder, who I, I couldn't have done it without, you know, we had been friends and decided that we could do this together because he also really recognized the problem. And we actually, <laughs> we did something that I'm very glad we did, which is we tried working together for 10 hours a week while we were still at our other jobs. He was at Atlassian, just to see if we liked working together. And I think this is a really key step because uh, we established that, yes, you know, we did like working together. We had this bedrock foundation that we, we could have an actual productive working relationship. The number one advice I give to early stage startups is make sure you really like your co-founder and make sure you really like your actual problem set, your space. Because <laughs> there's going to be hard days. And if you look at your co-founder, you're like, well, I never liked you anyway. And I'm doing um, ad tech for dogs, which I don't care about either. Like your, your company's going to fail that day. You know, <laughs> if there's a tough day, but... You know, John's been my friend for a long time. I look at him and I'm like, okay, this is a tough day, but we're in it together. And I am so incredibly passionate about our space. So we'll, we'll get through this. So now you've, you, you've found, you have an idea, you've decided to do a startup, you have a co-founder. What did you go on to do then? Did you, did you both quit and just jump in? Did you raise money first? <laughs> it, it was very hard because I was a director at a public company, Concur, that was doing quite well. Um, John was doing very well in his career at Atlassian. Uh, so it was this very scary step to leave these, you know, quote unquote, good jobs and do something else. Atlassian was on the track to IPO, by the way. And also John had just had a baby. <laughs> well, John's wife had had the baby. Uh, so it, it was hard to convince ourselves to actually do it full time. Uh, finally, the mental leap for me was, do I want to look back in my 60s or 70s and say I could have done a startup, but I didn't even try, you know, which was a good framing device for me and for John, by the way, my co-founder to say, uh, I would rather try to do this and figure out that it's not going to work than to always kind of look back and say, well, I could have done that, but I didn't. It's so true. It's so often that's the trigger, which is you take a step back and you think about, do I want to look myself in the mirror and, and recognize that I, didn't, that I didn't take the plunge? And, and that becomes the forcing function as it was in your case. It was so, definitely so, scary though. Like, I mean, I talked, John and I talked about it. I'm like, you know, we could go without salaries for a year or two and not just the loss of salary, but the opportunity cost that we could have been making money somewhere else and end up not friends anymore. And we both decided it was worth it, but it was an honest discussion that, you know, Many, many, many startups do not succeed. Uh, almost all of them, in fact. Got it. And so you've decided, you know, you're going to be CEO, he's CTO. Did you, you know, I'm assuming you pulled a deck together, started doing the rounds of Sandal Road? <laughs> no. No, no, no. no. <laughs> um, 
So keep in mind, we've both gone to Harvey Mudd College. So, and I- After school. Yeah, but it, it does not have, a, like at the time, it did not have a, a deep, like Sand Hill Road network. Uh, I, I remember, uh, <laughs> I so I had been basically the level below the founders at TripIt. Uh, so I was good friends with the founders there and I asked Scott Hintz, the founder, my old boss for advice. And he said basically that. That's why I was laughing. He's like, you know, why don't you just get a deck together and go pitch your, you know, your Stanford buddies who are now VCs or your business school buddies who are now VCs. And I'm like, uh, I went to Harvey Mudd College. I don't know any VCs. John went to Harvey Mudd College. Then he got a PhD in computer science. He doesn't know any VCs. <laughs> like, we don't, we don't even know like how to crack that door open. And I, I had this perception of VCs as like this mysterious people that I just had, had no context of how to even begin to talk with. And so how did you figure it out? Uh, so how did I figure it out? <laughs> I just remember Scott telling me that and we just feel like, oh my gosh, Scott, I have no idea how to even begin to do that. <laughs> we joined an accelerator, which was, I think, amongst the best things that could have happened for us because we joined a great one. Uh, we joined Alchemist Accelerator uh, and they really gave us a crash course in how to fundraise, which I really needed. I applied to accelerators because I thought they could help us. We applied to YC and got an interview and got a no. Our YC interview, we'd read up in like six minutes in, they gave a courtesy knock that you only have two more minutes. Uh, you know, it was kind of a cue to wrap up. At our six minutes, everybody leapt to their feet and escorted us out of the room. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, this is not good, John. <laughs> Five hundred startups turned us down. Uh, Alchemist accepted us, uh, which is, and I think that in hindsight, that was the best thing that could have happened to us because it was a great fit for us. Um, we were very determined to have a working company. Uh, we weren't doing this as a hobby. I see a lot of first-time founders, sometimes even second or third-time founders, to be honest having this fantasy world of a startup is great. I get to sit around and talk on podcasts and ideate. The early stages are incredibly difficult. We were extremely motivated. Like I said, uh, John had a baby. So there was no like, hey, let's not work hard. Uh, so he started making a prototype. I started going out and getting customers. We were an alchemist and we were going to try to bootstrap as long as possible. And then we wanted to hire our first engineer uh, who we needed to pay. At this point, John and I were not paying ourselves. Um, so I went around to everybody I knew that had money from prior jobs and got together a friends and family round and then went around to seed firms and got a, a seed funding round, which gave us enough that we could start to hire our first team. And how was that experience of raising from seed investors and friends and family? What uh, are the lessons you learned? Oh gosh. So I teach a class now for Alchemist Accelerator on fundraising, and we've gone on to raise, Love Sharply has raised uh, over $100 million now, but the earliest rounds were absolutely the hardest for us, absolutely the hardest. Uh, we were two people, John and myself, uh, who didn't know how to fundraise and were just basically raising on promise. Uh, the other thing that was incredibly difficult for us was that it was a brand new category. Now feature management is pretty well established. We have customers like IBM, Envision, BMW, household names. At the time we had zero customers and there was no belief that this space could even exist. 
we would get into like the very beginning of due diligence with a VC and they would say, well, what is this? I don't have a comparison. And then let me bounce it off my smarter friends who are engineers and their engineer friends would say, what is this? Nobody wants this. If they do, they'll build it in house. So it was, it was incredibly difficult to raise that first money. I had the strong conviction that the product needed to exist. That's, that's what kept both John and myself going, but it was, very hard to convince uh, investors. Our earliest investors, I said before, were old coworkers. And later they said basically they invested because they believed in me and John, because they knew us, but they had no idea what we were doing. And the number one mistake I did in the early pitches was I didn't brag enough, or I didn't brag at all about John or, or myself and our backgrounds. Uh, I was an engineer and I was used to working on a team where when you're on a team producing a product, you don't brag about yourself. It's all about the team. It's all about the team is doing this, the team made a great product, the team did well. Uh, when you're pitching to a VC, you need to brag about yourself. You need to say, I am Edith Harbaugh. I had the number one travel app and I started TripIt for Business, uh, which made a million dollars and was one of the reasons why Concur acquired us. Boom. And I just wasn't comfortable saying that at the time. I felt like it was bragging. I mean, it was true, but I, I felt like I didn't, I shouldn't be doing that. And then I think it's a very hard thing for a technical founder to wrap their head around because I think in, in technical fields, sometimes there is a strong bias against people who are seen as showy. Have you seen something similar in technical founders? You talk yeah, I see it all the time. And I think it's changing because, you know, folks like you sort of have definitely, I think, educated uh, the next generation of technical founders, but most technical founders struggle with this. And if you happen to be an immigrant technical founder, it's even harder you know, culturally, it's harder for, for, for a lot of communities to sort of brag as much. But in general, engineers sort of struggle with that. I see a lot of first-time founders spending, my, myself included, spending way too much time on a deck and not enough time on a paragraph blurb. So people, including myself, will spend weeks agonizing over just the perfect deck flow. Uh, when honestly, all you really want to do at the early stage is get a meeting. Uh, if you're pitching to angels or even seed funds, sometimes you don't really need a deck. You just need a good paragraph at a good meeting. And where I see people fall very short is on that good paragraph that'll get them in the door for that meeting. Just like a three sentence thing of why are you and your co-founder the best people in the entire world? You know, you should be, you as CEO should be the best. Your co-founder should compliment you perfectly. Uh, why your market is amazing and also why you're the best people to go after it. And why is the best time for this product? And that, that, that should just be your blurb and that should be your entree into a meeting. And instead people focus a lot on a 20 page deck that kind of rambles all over the place. You're so right. In fact, one of the hardest things I, you know, for me is the vast majority of blurbs I read, I actually have no idea what the company does. Literally the two sentence description of what do you do? Why it's an interesting problem to go solve? Why the time is right to solve that problem? What's the insight, technical or market, that led you to go solve that problem? Like you have to find a way to synthesize that in two paragraphs. I help a lot of startups now. And it's funny, I'm thinking of this because I'm coaching them and they're like, well, I don't want to talk about myself. It's like, well, if somebody's going to cut you a check for like $500,000, they want to know that you are a trustworthy person and say something. Like, what do you, what do you think is the art of a good blurb? You know, uh, for me, it's something that catches my attention. And it, sometimes it's something unique about the person or something unique about the market 
or something unique about the sort of the way they're solving the problem. You can't get everything right in a blur, but if you get one thing that truly stands out, uh, for me, that's enough to take a meeting. Yeah, I use the tripod of um, team, dream, and traction. Like if you just left a major division at Google and have a PhD in AI, most people are gonna take a meeting. If you have a, a good dream, people also are attracted, then there's traction about what progress you're making. And just, just crystallize that. And, and then the mistake people make is instead trying to make these elaborate, overblown decks that just don't even make sense. Any one or two experiences from there that are worth sharing about, you know, either the way people responded or, you know, maybe there's a lesson in there for VCs on how not to treat entrepreneurs that you want to share. Uh, you know, it was a good lesson for me that, you know, fundraising is really hard. <laughs> you, you gotta, you gotta get your pitch honed. You gotta nail your numbers. You gotta, you gotta be able to talk coherently. A lesson I learned though is I, I actually got to know a lot of VCs that turned out to be very helpful. And some of them turned around and funded us later. Um, it's, nice. it's, it's not a no for forever. It's a no right now sometimes. So let's fast forward a little bit. You've raised a little bit of seed money. You're off to the races. What was the journey of getting your first few customers like? Oh, extremely hard, extremely hard. Uh, the, the two challenges we faced were, we were a new business, um, in a new field and nobody even really knew if they needed something like this. And if they did, why would they buy it from us? I do a session for the new hires uh, of, of our company of launch Darkly, where I walk through our history and I showed a picture of, uh, the four of us in the early days at our first meetup, uh, myself, my co-founder and our first two engineers. <laughs> and I was talking about how hard it was to get our first customers because we were, we were so small and it was hilarious. One of our new hires and, and new engineers like, well, yeah, I wouldn't have bought from you at that stage. Like it, way too risky to buy from a four person company. If, it, if something goes wrong, I, I, I would be in big trouble. And so who were your first few customers? Were there friends that sort of trusted you or, you know, friends that sort of large companies how do you go about sort of, because it is hard. I mean, this is the challenge everyone faces. If you're doing something that's in the mission critical path, it, it's really hard to get people, to, the first few people to take a bet on you. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult. Uh, it's like zero to 10 customers is absolutely the hardest step, I think. Uh, our first customers were startup friends and then uh, friends from old jobs, but it was still hard. You know, um, we, people, don't use you don't don't use your product unless they really trust you and we, we tried very much to repay that trust like we would show up on site for installation we would stay there until it was gone uh you know until the installation was done um we would set up private hip chat uh, hip chat existed back then channels for people we really took it very seriously that they were trusting us did you insist on charging them in the beginning or were you you know there's two schools of thought there are people who say I want everyone to pay me from day one, even if it's a small amount. And there's others that say, look, I'm just gonna give it away for free for the first 10 customers. Uh, we did a hybrid. Uh, I'm of the camp that I wanted people to at least acknowledge that they would pay. So I would say, uh, we're doing a beta while we work out our pricing. The price to be in the beta is $20 or $100, depending on how confident I felt that day. 
<laughs> I remember once they asked for twenty dollars and my voice cracked. Um, I was like, "Do you want to pay us twenty dollars?" <laughs> um, so a lot of that asking for money was also just to get me more comfortable with asking for money. The joke is that we never actually invoiced because uh, I did the invoicing back then. <laughs> So we had our first five customers. We said, uh, you're in our beta. You have to commit to paying, you know, 20 or a hundred dollars, but I would never actually get around to invoicing, but I had at least gotten them to agree that they did value it at least at that level. And how did you go find that first salesperson? I had started business lines and I'd started products before. Um, so I, I'd, I'd been in an IOT company called PlantSense, and I'd been the product manager and I'd also done all the marketing there. So I knew that it's not enough just to build a product. You also have to let people know that product exists. Uh, when I had been at TripIt, I'd actually managed our, our uh, salespeople there. So I knew that you, you, if you get big enough, you do have to start to subdivide at work and get great people to do it. I think, again, technical founders have this misbelief that they can go and concentrate on the product and hire a salesperson, the salesperson will just go sell. Uh, any good salesperson wants to step into some sort of pipeline and process and motion, even if it's very primitive, they'll want to know stuff like what's, what's my, um, if I hit my numbers, how much am I going to make? And if your answer is numbers, what numbers, they're not going to want to join your company if they're good. You might get a lot of very bad salespeople, but you won't get a good one. A phrase we have at our company is right person, right time. And the people we talked to when we're in our first 20 people in terms of who was a great hire, in some ways has changed now that we're bigger. Absolutely. The salespeople that we're hiring now, I don't think, 90% of them would have joined us four, four years ago. It's just they wanted a different structure and a different process. Uh, on the other hand, we've tried to also build a, a company where uh, one of our core values is learn and grow. Uh, so our second, third, and fourth salespeople are still at the company and still absolutely rocking it. So that makes me extremely happy. But you have to be prepared for both paths. Uh, some people will learn and grow with the company. And also, as you grow, you'll be able to get different people that were, would not have been comfortable or happy at that earlier stage. What are some of the other lessons you learned about hiring your first salesperson? What would you do differently? Uh, general lessons about selling your first salesperson is that you have to have the basics down. Um, you have to be comfortable with who your customer target is, what your rough pricing is, have the basics of your pitch together so that you can hand this off to them to be a, a force multiplier. If you're just saying, hey, salesperson, you go figure all of this out, of course they're gonna not really succeed. Another thing that you have to be really clear on, and that we were at least, is uh, we were a developer-heavy company. I mean, we were just developers at cool. the time. That it was very clear with the team that like, hey, our salesperson is our best friend. Like, he is gonna be our voice to the customer. And he's also going to bring all this stuff back from the customer in terms of feedback. So he's not going to be the salesperson who's over there in the corner. He's going to eat lunch with us and he's actually going to be in our standups every day uh, to give us feedback. You know, if he's out there in the field, I say out there metaphorically, you know, he sat with us, but and saying, Hey, all our customers want SSO. We need to take them seriously. 
Uh, otherwise, we're just going to splinter as a company if we're not getting all this awesome data from customers that he's giving to us. So we really integrated him into the into our workflow, <laughs> to use an engineering term. Um, at the time when we were an eight-person company, we had a daily stand-up, which is an engineering practice where everybody literally stands up and talks about blockers and what yep. they're working on. He, he was part of that. Like he stood up every day and said, what were the deals he was working on and the blockers on them? And That's it was great. That's very unusual. It was great. And also then when the engineers said what they were working on, he could be like, oh, great. You know, customer blah is asking for that feature. Um, but he was, he was part of the team. I think that's, that's very unusual. I think most people tend to treat engineering as this sort of thing that's very different from sales. And obviously the CEO of the company is involved in both, but rarely does the broader team get exposure to sales and vice versa. Oh, it was great in the early days, you know, cause, um, also we were selling to developers. So he loved it cause he got to hear our terminology of like, you know, Hey, we're trying to fit this into their next sprint. And so when a customer said, Hey, we don't know if we can fit your product into our next sprint. He knew what they were talking about. And how have you maintained that culture over time as, the, as both engineering and sales have grown? Uh, we don't do it exactly the same anymore. Uh, you know, you, you can't do a all company sprint or all company stand up when you're, you know, much above 10 people, but every all hands still, um, somebody from product delivery does a demo and somebody from the sales team prevent, uh, presents a customer profile. And it is just a way so that they could both see each other's world of, you know, this is what we're working on. And then the sales team will break down a use case of how our customer is using us. When we were in our very early days at eight people, we didn't write down our values because we thought it, it wasn't needed at the time. When we got our A round, we knew that we were going to hire um, many more people more quickly than we'd ever done in the past. So we did a deliberate effort of writing down our values because uh, we didn't want people to just assume them. We wanted people to know them. We did a survey of the eight of us at the time about what they thought our values were. And then I worked with John, my co-founder, and we wordsmith them a little bit and we wrote them down. And we also painted them in like foot high letters by our office door. Uh, if you could go into our office, you'll see them. And I also do a new hire session with all the new hires to explain the values and what they mean. And this has been really powerful. People still say like, hey, we really actually live our values. They're not just in the handbook printed somewhere. They're actually part of our culture. And, and, and that's something very important to me, to know what your values are and to, to convey them to people so they have them to go back to and refer to. And, and as you've scaled, you know, now that you have 200 people, you know, how do you sort of imprint those values on new hires? Yeah. So every new hire gets an hour with me um, where I go over the history of the company and where the values came from and different ways that we apply them. Um, even prior to the new hire session, uh, part of our interviews is a specific value section where a longer term employee is specifically picked to interview for how does this person fit with our values. And that is something that we try very hard to adhere to. As you've scaled and had to build an executive team, what's, you know, what are some of the lessons you've learned from that? Managing, you know, now you're managing managers or managers themselves and in some cases, maybe multiple levels of management. So I give a lot of credit to Concur. I thought they did an amazing job with management training. 
I was there as a director and, you know, you, they had specific training of now it's time for you to be manager of managers and here's the training that you get now. And I viewed it very much as a treat and them investing in me and not as a punishment. And I, you know, they're like, you're on this track. So you get to go to public speaking training. And there's two ways to take that, that you're a crap public speaker, which by the way, yes, I was at the time, but also that they wanted to invest in me. Uh, so that, that's, how, that's how we try to treat it at LaunchDarkly. Um, we have explicit manager path training and we always try to position it as we are investing in you because we want you to succeed. Makes sense. What are some of the other lessons as you think about building out the company, especially from the you know, post-Series A to where you are today? What advice would you have for other founders? Uh, <laughs> a really basic one, which I learned was executive recruiters are really worth it. This is extremely tactical, but you know, an executive recruiter will help you find the right person because they know who's in market and who's a good fit with you. I was resistant to executive recruiters because I was like, well, great people will still apply and we'll find them that way. Uh, that's, that's not really how it works if you're a senior top level executive. They, they want to be a little bit um, pitched and matchmaked by a recruiter. And also they'll find you great people that you wouldn't even realize were in market. I agree with you completely. I think, I think executive recruiters do three things. One is they force a conversation about the trade-offs. What are you really looking for? Very often companies between the board members and the CEO, they just, I mean, you're not in sync on, on what you want and you can go around in circles. Yep. And, a, and a great recruiter can force that conversation. I think the second thing they do is they really put structure and process in place. I've seen too, way too many of these searches go on forever. And you don't realize it, that every week that you don't make the decision, there's an opportunity cost associated with that week. Oh, absolutely. And, and of course, I mean, you already talked about the main thing, which is they actually do find you great candidates. Uh, but I think in, in, I've had many situations where you actually ended up hiring someone through a network, but I'm still not sure that we've done it without the recruiter. You know, the constant pushing every week to say, look, what's our pipeline like? It's the same reason you have salespeople. You need someone to drive structure and process in what is essentially a sales process. It's just a sales process to candidates. As you take a step back from the individual steps of the journey and look back and say, you know, over the last six years, you've built a company with 200 people, you know, many tens of millions in revenue. What are some of the things you wish someone had told you when you were starting out? If you're an infrastructure product, the cycles are actually very, very slow sometimes because you have to build trust with the customer. Um, they have to fit you into their engineering life cycle and then they have to build comfort with what you're delivering and then expand more. And, and that can just feel excruciating, but that's how you'll get really passionate, loyal customers if you stick out the work. That's it for this episode. You can find past episodes and subscribe to future ones on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. B2B as CEO is brought to you by Foundation Capital, an early stage venture capital firm with 27 IPOs, including Netflix, Lending Club, TubeMogul, and Sunrun. I'm Arshur Gard, a general partner at Foundation Capital. I'm passionate about helping B2B entrepreneurs who are trying to solve hard problems. So if this podcast speaks to you, 
If you're interested in growing from a technical founder into a business leader, drop me a line. Thanks and see you next time.